Welcome, patrons, and thank you for joining us at this special event. This is 10 Things, a series devoted to presenting 10 more things about all those great Saturday morning shows of the 1980s. If you're joining us, it means you wanted more than the Saturday morning podcast had to offer. Think of this as the after show, where we can make a good thing last just a little longer. So grab a can of new Coke and a handful of fruit wrinkles and come back with me to the 80s. Rewind! Again! The Smurfs ran for 9 seasons and 256 episodes, but you already knew that. In fact, there's a lot you already know if you listen to this Saturday morning podcast. While we explored the Smurfs, there is still plenty to look back on and explore. Here are 10 things you might not know about the Smurfs. Number 10. In 1983, Post Cereals created Smurfberry Crunch. It was a fruity sweetened oat and corn cereal. The cereal box showcased Papa Smurf with Smurfette and the others picking Smurfberries from a tree. It was a Smurfy part of a nutritious breakfast. Some of the prizes included a presidential Smurf button advocating for Papa Smurf or Brainy Smurf for president in 1984. Other prizes included decal rub-ons and a trip to Washington, D.C. It was also rumored that the dye in the cereal had an interesting side effect, blue poop. In 1987, perhaps in response to the Smurf-colored dookie, the formula was changed. Smurf Magic Berries now featured marshmallow stars and came in red, orange, and yellow colors. Oh yeah, and the first round of Smurfberry Crunch commercials featured a 13-year-old who would go on to be well-known. A very young Jack Black appeared in commercials for this serial and Activision gaming consoles. Of this experience, Black commented that he lost street credit school when the commercial aired. Number 9. Hoyt Stoddard Curtin may not be a household name, but I'd bet you've heard his stuff around your house. I'm also pretty sure that you'd remember him for the fact that his name is Hoyt. In the 1950s, Curtin was a composer for TV commercials. He was in demand for his talent to produce earworms. While working on a jingle for Schlitz Beer for MGM, he met William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, who were contracted for the commercial's animation. The way the trio worked was interesting. Hanna and Barbera came up with the lyric and called up Curtin. Two weeks later, the composer called up the animators and played the tune he'd written over the phone. There was a wave of silence that followed, and Curtin was certain he had bombed his first assignment. But he was wrong. Hannah and Barbara loved it. When the animators left MGM to start their own company, they took Curtin with them. The composer became the musical director for Hanna-Barbera from 1957 until 1986 when he retired. There was, however, a seven-year span from 1965 to 1972 when Curtin did not hold this position. Just three years into his work with Hanna-Barbera, Curtin composed perhaps his best-known theme song, The Flintstones. As a Hanna-Barbera regular, he'd composed theme songs for The Jetsons, Johnny Quest, Super Friends, and of course, The Smurfs. For The Smurfs, he'd composed music for 126 episodes of the series 256. His last credit as composer was for The Flintstones on the Rocks, a Hanna-Barbera TV movie that aired in 2001. 
Curtin passed away at the age of 78 on December 3rd, 2000 in Thousand Oaks, California. Number 8. When a show comes along that is so original, so groundbreaking, you can count on one thing. Imitators. It's a no-brainer that original work always breeds rip-offs or homages, or however you have to say it to justify it in your mind. When Star Wars came out, a lot of people rushed science fiction movies into production because that's what was hot. While the Smurfs came out in 1981, its imitator would come out three years later. Now, here's where things take a different turn. It was Hanna-Barbera that knew a knockoff was coming. They decided to create their own ripoff in-house to cash in. You could get away with two shows that were alike, but three? Probably not. So, Hanna-Barbera worked with producer Freddie Menachendam to develop a property he had. See, Menachendam had worked with Smurfs creator Peo in the 1970s, and he was eager to develop something like the Smurfs. In fact, he already had. In the mid-1970s, he created a comic book about snorkel-headed creatures who lived in an underwater community. When Hanna-Barbera and NBC wanted to create their own copy, he proposed the Snorks. The animation studio and the network bought it. It might be the only time when the originators ripped off themselves. Number 7. During the nine seasons that the Smurfs were on the air, the opening to the show changed on a yearly basis. What's funny is that I only remember one opening with the La La song. I was taken aback when I prepared the Smurfs episode of the podcast because the first season opening just didn't have that Smurfy vibe I remembered. Now, realizing it was changed multiple times, it all makes sense. Season 1 starts with scenes of the Smurfs, the village, the introduction of Gargamel. There's pleasant, flute-driven music and a voiceover narration. Season 2 used the lyrics to The Smurf Song by Father Abraham. It includes Johan and Peewit, characters also created by Peo, which introduced The Smurfs in 1958. Season 4 used footage from the special The Smurfit Games that had run on NBC. This was also the season where the show was billed as Smurf Adventures in a shortened opening. When an opening is shortened, it's usually because commercials became longer or the creators needed more time for the story being told. Season 5 uses the character of Puppy introduced in the season's second episode. By far, the most unrecognizable opening is from Season 9, when the Smurfs were able to travel through time. This opening uses a carved rock Smurf logo on a beach where Peo's credit is spelled out with rocks. The opening used the Time Scrolls, Papa Smurf, the Ruby Key, all the trappings of this season to quickly explain why Season 9 was so different from the previous 8 years of shows. The genie, flying carpet, and dinosaurs definitely put the emphasis on different. Number 6. The white bonnets that the Smurfs wear are called Phrygian caps. They date back to the 4th century BC in the Hellenistic period. They were associated with the legend of King Midas and came to represent other things in history. They became known as Liberty Caps and were given to freed slaves in the days of Julius Caesar. In revolutionary France around 1675, insurgents wore the Liberty Caps to protest the taxes and the nobility. In America, the Liberty Cap was adopted just before the Revolutionary War. It was even imprinted on American coins around the late 1700s. 
After these messages, we'll be right back. Here's real turboprop aerial action. Here's Tonka's Hand Command turboprop. You can put an action figure aboard, spin the props, retract the wheels, climb, zoom, and dive. You can pretend to fly anywhere. Action figure not included. Hand Command turboprop toy plane. From Tonka. This boy is losing oh. his grip. Oh. Why did he lose his grip so soon? Oh. He didn't fuel up with a good breakfast. Cheerios! Mm, like this good, nutritious breakfast with toast, juice, milk, and yummy Cheerios, which has almost no sugar. When you fuel up in the morning with a Cheerios breakfast, it'll really get you going. It's the great-tasting Bubble Yum Sweepstakes. Millions will enter to win the grand prize weekend for four at any Six Flags Park. A Thousands of other great prizes. To enter, send two wrappers or the words Bubble Yum Bubble Gum to Box 2705, Westbury, New York, 11591. And on with the countdown. Number 5. One of the creative designers and producers on the Smurfs was Hanna-Barbera legend Iwo Takamoto. Born in Los Angeles in 1925, Takamoto and his family would be placed in the Manzanar internment camp for Japanese Americans after the attack on Pearl Harbor. They would stay there for the duration of World War II. Interested in art and animation after World War II, Takamoto created a sketchbook composed of everything he saw around him. It would be this sketchbook that landed him the position of assistant animator at Walt Disney Studios. After working on classics like Cinderella, Peter Pan, and 101 Dalmatians, Takamoto left Disney in 1961 for Hanna-Barbera. At Hanna-Barbera, he excelled as a character designer. He would design iconic characters for Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, and The Jetsons. Takamoto became a producer who supervised the animated Addams Family and Hong Kong Fui, among others. In 1981, he was a contributor to the Smurfs. To end his remarkable career, he would work his way up to become the Vice President of Special Projects for Warner Brothers Animation after Warner acquired Hanna-Barbera. On January 8, 2007, Takamoto suffered a heart attack and passed away at the age of 81. He was so respected in the world of animation that in the week following his death, Adult Swim put up a bumper that simply read, Iwo Takamoto, 1925-2007. Number 4. The first episode of The Smurfs, titled The Astro Smurf, had an astounding 16 writing credits on it. 16 for a show that ran 24 minutes. Now, Peo is credited as the creator and developer. His partner, Evan Delporte, is listed as the co-concept creator. Of the other 14, 13 of them are listed as story contributors. Maybe these were the writers in the room who contributed the gags, or lines, or helped to break the story into acts, or adapted story from the comic books to the television medium. Of the story people, Len Jansen and Chuck Menville stand out. 
Both would go on to write the pilot for The Real Ghostbusters in 1986. Menville also came from a Disney background, but moved to Hanna-Barbera after The Jungle Book. J. Michael Reeves and Mark Scott Zacree also stand out. Reeves for Shazam and Tarzan. He's also a notable science fiction author, having written Dark World Detective, The Shattered World, and others. Zacree wrote the Twilight Zone companion book and worked on Black Star and Space Stars. The one person listed as the writer of the episode was Gene Aris, who worked in animation from 1979 to 1986. He's credited with writing for Super Friends, the new Scooby and Scrappy-Doo show, and, at the end of his animation career, Dennis the Menace. More recently, he worked as a freelance writer and editor in China. He wrote a non-fiction memoir about that experience titled Inside the New China. Number 3. Now, this is one of the tougher ones to handle. It's rumored that the Smurfs are communists. They all work together for the greater good. Papa Smurf is said to be an allusion to Karl Marx with his affinity for the color red and his beard. Also, Papa is the leader. The Smurfs have a self-sustaining village and they don't use money. While there are theories out there, they don't hold water if you go back to the source of the creation. Smurf creator Pierre Culliford, known as Peo, was uninterested in politics. In the heart of the Cold War, he was not trying to make a case for communism over capitalism. The Smurfs were not a metaphor for commune living. They were simply a way to tell stories with little blue creatures. Peo's non-interest in politics is backed up by his son, who now runs his father's animation studio. Number 2. Papa Smurf has 99 sons and one daughter. And yet, he'd claim that there's nothing weird about that. Common sense brings up all kinds of questions about reproduction, Smurfette's role in the community, and why the Smurfs aren't drinking their dinners through a straw and playing banjos with their toes. So, Smurfette didn't start out as a real Smurf. She was an ugly little thing that Gargamel made and brought to life. His plan was to introduce a girl Smurf to the village and watch all 99 boys fight it out to be with her. The evil wizard theorized it would tear the village apart. Once Smurfette got to the village, she felt like she had found a home. She confessed her involvement with Gargamel, and Papa Smurf used magic to transform her into a real Smurf. That magic brought changes. Her hair went from brown and witch-like to fine and golden. Her bulbous nose was shrunk to normal size, and she became eye candy. Despite tweets by comedian Sarah Silverman and a memorable scene in the movie Donnie Darko about Smurfette's role in the village, it's clear they are all wrong. If you thought Smurfette was the Smurf mother, you'd be out of your ever-Smurfin' mind, although it does raise the question about the origin of the Smurfs. In the original Smurf comic books, Smurfette's role was to be the damsel in distress. The TV show carried this over from time to time. Along the way, she became tougher, more tomboy-like. Because of the popularity of the TV series, the character was altered in the continuing comics in Europe. In a 2010 comic book story, Smurfette even becomes the leader of the village. While she might have been a reflection of the 1960s, hopefully she will continue to be a reflection of these ever-changing times and continue to take on more positive roles for women. And now, a very special announcement.
Betty White, and I'll be right back with One to Grow Up. Luke, just because Mom and Dad are gone for a few hours doesn't mean you have to hog the bathroom. I'm not. I can't get the door open. It's stuck. Oh, great. Hurry up. The toilet's overflowing. I accidentally flushed a brush down there. Oh, gross. Ah, oh, get me out of here. There's water everywhere. Who do I call? What do I do? Don't panic. If you know you're going to be alone in the house, make sure you have a phone number of a neighbor or a relative handy to call in case of an emergency. Ask your parents where they'll be. And keep numbers for the police and fire departments by the phone. Knowing who to reach in a hurry will take away the need to worry. Mom, Bobby's mom! Miss Swinnerton, boy, am I glad I found your number. See you in a couple minutes. Hang on, Luke. Help is on the way. And that's Wonder Grower. And now, number one. One of the Smurfs' greatest abilities was their ability to coexist despite all their differences. Sure, they may have booted Brainy out of the colony from time to time, but I believe that was warranted. If you listen to the main podcast, you know how I feel about Brainy. Because the Smurfs were a peaceful community, UNICEF turned to their little blue friends in 2005 for a commercial that aired in Belgium. Belgium, of course, was the birthplace of the Smurfs way back in 1958. The commercial starts in the Smurf Forest. The animation looks like the 1981 series. There are butterflies flying and Smurfs smurfing together. And then, at 14 seconds in, the craziest thing happens. There's a shot of bombs dropping through the skies. The bombs land on the Smurfs' campfire as the villagers are singing and holding hands. Flames envelop the screen. One of the Smurfs run, and a bomb blast throws him against one of the mushroom houses, clearly killing him. More and more bombs fall in the village. Among the carnage is Baby Smurf, crying at the horror and complete lack of understanding. It looks like Smurfette is close by, but dead, her leg twisted into an unnatural angle. It cuts to a blue screen with words that translate to, Do not let war destroy the children's world. As far as I can tell, it's still in use in Europe as an anti-war PSA. If nothing else, it gets the point across. And there you have it, 10 things about the Smurfs. Join us next time when we take a look at 10 things about Pac-Man. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us at the Saturday Morning Podcast 10 Things Series. If you'd like to drop us a line, please write to satwornpod at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at satwornpod. Do you have any vintage Saturday morning memories? Email us your story and we could read it on the next episode.